Hello and welcome to the Tech Policy Podcast. I've sent Ash back to Russia for an indeterminate period and have taken over the show. This is Baron Soka, Tech Freedom. I'm sure Ash will be back for the next episode. But I'm here today with a special guest. We're here to talk about the state of the wireless marketplace. The proposed merger of Sprint and T-Mobile has raised many concerns from both regulators and the general public. The FCC has taken comments on the merger and tried to evaluate what the role of a new T-Mobile would look like. Among many of the issues that have been discussed, uh, it was not really discussed how the FCC should evaluate the role of new companies that are entering the market for wireless services, most notably what are being called hybrid mobile network operators. Those are HMNOs, in case you're following from home. Uh, what that means for wireless services. So today on the show, we have with us uh, Dr. Michelle Conley, professor in the practice of economics at Duke University, my alma mater, very good economics department, to discuss her recent report on those hybrid mobile network operators and why the FCC should look at those and thinking about the state of mobile telephony and how to deal with uh, competition in the marketplace. So Dr. Conley, welcome to the show. Thank you. Uh, and I, I hear you have a special talent. I'm a dancer. Not an exotic dancer. Okay. Well, we've had a few of those on the show in the past. So um, ballet, ballet, I assume. Ballet, yes. Well, uh, that's more kinesthetic ability than I have. Um, probably more than our former male host of this podcast had. <laughs> We're not the most talented people. Um, we're also not economists. I studied economics at Duke. Uh, I know a little bit about the about the market, and I understand that it's important to think dynamically about who's competing in the marketplace today. So, I'll just just by way of introduction, I use Project Phi. So, Project Phi is what's called a mobile virtual network operator. They resell the capacity of Sprint and T-Mobile to provide me service. Uh, they also buy Wi-Fi. A hotspot capacity from some uh, Wi-Fi operators, so I can use that Wi-Fi hotspot. And they have a white list of trusted Wi-Fi hotspots. But what you're describing, the hybrid mobile network operator, seems to be coming at this from the other end. It's cable companies who are starting out here. Could you just explain who are these operators and what are they doing? Correct. So this is something that's completely new. It only started about a year ago, and it started with uh, Comcast. Basically, the operators, um, the cable operators pass many, many households in the United States. They really have a big network already, a fixed broadband network. And they've been concerned with losing subscribers, in part because mobile broadband is becoming more and more of a possible substitute for fixed broadband, in part because over-the-top TV services are decreasing demand for video subscribers and things of that nature. So uh, the cable operators have been looking at offering mobile service as a way of maintaining their base. And they have this amazing existing network and a very large set of Wi-Fi hotspots throughout much of the United States. And then they just enacted this virtual agreement with Verizon that allows them to also piggyback off of Verizon's uh, mobile network. So they're able to offer their customers a full service of fixed broadband, telephony, mobile broadband and mobile telephony um, and over the, and TV service. So, so it's like Project 5, but it has a stronger network of, of Wi-Fi hotspots because it's the entire... It does, but, but but also it has all the backhaul as well. It has. And a, can you explain what is backhaul and how that fits into the market here? Well, so the Wi-Fi is just the mechanism that takes a, a mobile transmission and offloads it onto a fixed line. 
But after that point, it still needs to get to its final destination. And so the cable operators are in a very good situation because they have millions and millions of miles of fiber and coaxial, high high quality cable that has low latency um, and and high quality. So it, it offers a very high quality service uh, once it's on the fixed lines. And and that backhaul is both for the Wi-Fi hotspots, and there's also backhaul needed for the wireless towers themselves. Exactly. Do these deals and are these companies providing that kind of backhaul for the wireless operators? I believe they are. Yes, there's there's a certain amount of that already going on, and that's going to need to be occurring more and more as we move into 5G, where there's even more data going through and you're going to have less. So the issue is that in wireless situations, you can have congestion issues, you can have quality issues. That's getting better as each new generation of the technology improves. But if we can really create these uh, hybrid networks that are using the strengths of both dimensions, then uh, you can have far lower latency, far higher quality, and just just a bigger throughput of amount of information that would go through. And so today, these cable companies, the, the capacity they're offering in these sorts of arrangements is via Wi-Fi. I understand that some of them may also be planning to build out their own 5G networks to, to actually deploy uh, have a wider range would be like a, a super Wi-Fi. Right. So right now, right now they have Wi-Fi and they have an agreement with Verizon. So right now Comcast, who just announced they have a million customers at this point, and this is in just over a year of service. So they have the Verizon network and their Wi-Fi, and they just purchased $1.7 billion worth of 600 megahertz spectrum in the incentive auctions. So there, there's a direct intent by Comcast to build some of their own network kind of in their own geographic footprint. Using 5G antennas. Using regular, right, for 600 megahertz. And then there's also interest in, in the 5G venue where they may or may not, they can potentially use uh, licensed spectrum and there uh, is also potential for use of unlicensed spectrum that would allow them to build these 5G networks. And the thing is, in 5G, everyone seems interested. Dish has announced they're doing a 5G, Comcast, Charter, T-Mobile, Sprint, Verizon, AT&T. Everyone is uh, announcing they're interested in, in developing their own 5G networks. And, and from the user's perspective, the idea is this is all seamless, just as when I use Project Phi, I seamlessly transition from the Sprint network to the T-Mobile network to one Wi-Fi hotspot to another. In this case, it's a wider range of options of Wi-Fi hotspots, maybe some 5G or or whatever whatever other options that are directly offered by the cable company. Maybe it's the Verizon network. Right. So it's seamless from the perspective of the customer. If you were on a service that only used Wi-Fi, then you would be physically tethered at the moment of your communication, you wouldn't be able to say, hop in your car and continue moving on and necessarily have it be seamless. But when we have these hybrid situations where it's combined with a mobile network, then it is and can be. Great. So in today, we talk about there being four players in the, the nationwide market. And that becomes really important because people want to say that the the, the deal that is currently pending by which uh, T-Mobile would acquire Sprint 
would result in a four to three merger. Now we've, we've said that maybe in some ways it's actually more like a two to three merger because there are parts of the country where, as I know, because I now rely on the T-Bowman Sprint networks, those networks don't really exist or they don't have very good service. So in those markets, having a stronger competitor would actually mean you'd have a third option. But none of that really takes into account this potential for entry from from new players. So that that's what your paper is about and, 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 and how to add that to merger analysis. Uh, why do you think that the FCC didn't look at that or hasn't looked at it so far? Well, the thing is, until a year ago, it didn't exist. This was just a concept. And so previously, what we called mobile uh, virtual network operators were uh, reselling services that were being provided by the, the major operators, the Verizons, the AT&Ts, the Sprints, and, and the T-Mobiles. And uh, up until last year, the FCC considered that since these resellers the virtual operators like did, Project Fi, like Project Fi, or like or like TrackPhone. TrackPhone's very well known. Or Straight Talk. A lot of um, these companies are quite big, but they didn't have any of their own facilities. And the reasoning given in the past for why they weren't being considered as direct competitors is because they didn't have their own facilities, didn't have their ability to invest in enlarging their footprint or in, in doing anything of that nature. But with the cable operators coming in, and it's only been there for a year, so much of the data hadn't existed before, and we're only seeing the very beginning of it. So Charter has been in for a year. They have a million customers. I'm sorry, Comcast has been in for over a year, and they have over a million customers now. Charter just started in June. Altus will start next year. So their subscriber bases are going to be increasing pretty quickly. And we are already seeing an increase in the amount of churn that's happening with the MNOs, the the, the um, mobile network operators, traditional ones. You so, mean people are switching from those too? Well, people are, we don't, we don't necessarily see who's going from what, what provider to another, but we're seeing an increase in churn. And we're seeing that there are increases in the number of subscribers that are going to Comcast since obviously we started with zero. So historically, there wasn't anything for people to look at, but it's coming along now and it's going to be increasing as we move along. And, and the key difference is that what we're calling hybrid mobile network operators have partially their own facilities. They have the ability to cover a percentage of these um, not transactions, a percentage of these calls, let's say, without ever using the Verizon network. Or there are cases where something may be initiated on the Verizon network, but then get offloaded onto the Comcast network. Well, one other question, just to understand how this works. These cable companies have limited geographic footprints. So what happens when you go outside their geographic footprint? So there's a consortium between the cable companies. Um, it's a national consortium. So they enable uh, any of their users to use the Wi-Fi of the other cable operators at the same time. So that gives it a much more national coverage in terms of the Wi-Fi. Then uh, if enough of these cable operators continue to do that, that's going to become larger and larger. If we go to the 5G 
then depending on where they're investing in the 5G, they can increase their footprint as well. So then in terms of thinking about what the market looks like in the future, it sounds like we're talking about um, one, essentially one additional option developing and and which company that is may depend on where you live. Yes. But you but the option of getting the cable hybrid uh, service would be there in addition to Verizon, AT&T and the combination of Sprint and T-Mobile if they're allowed to merge. Exactly. I think but that that's so that's exactly right. Right now, for example, if I wanted to be an Xfinity customer with Comcast, I would need to be already or at least become a Comcast customer generally. So that footprint for the provision of those mobile services is limited to the geographic footprint of Comcast. But there's no physical reason why that can't be changed in the future. So currently, if I'm any, if I live somewhere where I'm offered, uh, in fact, I do live where Spectrum covers and they've been offering me, sending me letters about spectrum mobility. That's a they, cable company. So that very yeah, confusingly sorry. named, confusingly named. And it's actually charter. So charter just launched in June. I've already gotten five letters from them about how much money I could save by starting to move to their mobile service. So given my geographic location, my, the additional choice that I now have is charter or spectrum, but there's no reason why in the future there couldn't be greater arrangements that would allow, regardless of where you are physically located, for you to have, um, to be on a network provided by any one of these. Because there's nothing that stops them from investing in, in, in enlarging their network or in coming to agreements well, are, are within, you amongst themselves? There, there's even one on the, on trying to develop the mobile platform between Charter and Comcast. I see. So traditionally, there hasn't been very much overbuilding. So cable companies very seldom compete head to head because it's been very expensive to build out a cable network where you've got another one competing with you. Are you saying that in in the 5G world that maybe in certain markets, maybe where they're dense enough, that you might have more than one company that uh, tries to go in and build out a 5G network? Well, I think that I I don't know exactly how it, it will play out, but there are many groups that are interested in dominating in this new dimension. And so I think there will be overlay going on. If you think about Dish is saying they want some want this, they're probably going to have to link up with someone else. But whether they link up with the traditional mobile operators or if they link up with one of the cable operators, who knows? So I think there will be more overbuilding occurring. And certainly we see a lot of overbuilding in terms of mobile services. So there's no reason why this mobile service being provided by cable operators couldn't follow that similar pattern. So what is it, you keep mentioning that these things started a year ago. As an economic matter, why then? What what changed that allowed the market to shift? That's a good question. I'm not on the engineering side, so I can't I don't know that there was a big technological change. I think there have been different pressures on the cable operators uh, in terms of their business model and what's happening to their traditional sources of revenue. Uh, Over-the-top television services and online video services have changed that dimension. They're worried about losing customers, traditional video subscribers. Uh, They've been building out 
and, and what is helping them is the fixed broadband subscribers, which are doing very well and are increasing. But there's also this threat that mobile wireless, mobile broadband, mobile telephony, if it reaches a high enough quality, it could become a true substitute for these fixed uh, broadband services. Uh, and if you think about it, uh, a large part of the United States, especially lower income families, tend to only access the internet through mobile services. For most of these families, they don't have a fixed broadband. They only have a cellular service and they use that to connect to the internet. Well, and, and most people, and in part that's because of device ownership, you know, people who only have one device tend to have a mobile device. When we talk about these things, we're one thing that gets lost is most of the device usage occurs in fixed points anyway, home, right. office, um, maybe a coffee shop. Is there any data that that actually tells us how much of the typical usage, let's say on a mobile device, can just go through Wi-Fi versus needing a wireless network? I haven't seen data that, that says how much you will actually see uh, that it can or can't, but I do. I have seen data that both in the United States and in Europe says somewhere between seventy to eighty percent of the data that is either initiated on a wireless device or ends on a wireless device is at some point going through a fixed network, like a Wi-Fi hotspot. Like a Wi-Fi hotspot. So eighty percent, and that that's huge. And, and large of that part of that is driven by our video consumption. That's too data intensive to be really convenient uh, on this cellular. Right. But with 5G, presumably people will go watch their videos in public places like restaurants. Right. Won't that be fun? <laughs> They'll be able to do that. Well, so uh, this also, given that uh, and given that we're talking about these MVNOs or these H hybrid, hybrid. M MNOs, HMNOs, Given that these knows are trying to, to to become their own standalone services, what are they doing to reduce their reliance on the the uh, original wireless carriers? Well, so this is where their investments are going to matter, and this is probably why Comcast just spent one point seven billion dollars in the six hundred megahertz auction, um, and why they're doing all these tests at the uh, higher level, um, higher gigahertz spectrum levels. Uh, in order to reduce their costs, because it's, it's quite costly for them to be relying as much on Verizon. But they have that ability to invest in additional hotspots. They have the ability to potentially invest in uh, small cells for 5G. Uh, they have the ability to purchase more spectrum. S and, and there's clearly an interest in doing that. Got it. So what does all this mean for competitive analysis? Well, I, I, basically, th this is a new type of competitor for what for mobile services uh, that we didn't have before, and it's just starting. But given their assets and their position, I think they're a very well placed competitor, and uh, they will change how this market works. So, so given that they're, it's not hypothetical, that they're real, they exist, and they, they're building market share today, how much weight 
should, say, the FCC give that in analyzing something like the T-Mobile Sprint deal? That, you know, is it is it fair for the FCC to to assume that there are only four players in the market, or do they need to be thinking this is a market that has four existing players with one model, and there's another at least one emerging national nationwide option? that uses another model, but they're very, very close substitutes. How should they analyze that? Well, I think that they need to include this new type of competition in in any analysis of how competitive or what the options are for consumers in mobile services. Uh, In addition, if DISH is getting into the 5G, if DISH does create its own 5G network, that's also going to impact these services. There's much less distinction between fixed and mobile uh, than we used to have. And these, all of these things are changing and the technology is changing very quickly. So it's, I, it's anachronistic to think that what was relevant five years ago when looking at competition in the wireless market is still the exact uh, set of definitions and rules that apply now. And certainly that will apply in another five years. So what would it mean to include them in the analysis? I mean, how, how, do, how do you analyze a competitor like this that has a relatively small market share? Does the market share matter? Or is it the fact that there is another option in this form and maybe a sixth option in DISH that matters? Inherently, the the current size of their share is not the indication of the market pressure, the competitive pressure that they'll place on, say, the major operators. The key is what is the risk of these operators to losing their primary subscribers to a Comcast. Now, it's also interesting because to the extent that Comcast is paying Verizon to resell some of its own services, it's not entirely a zero-sum game from Verizon's perspective. But there's this trade-off between the primary subscribers that they might have and how much they're getting through resale through a hybrid MNO or through just a traditional uh, virtual operator. But, but someone might say, well, if it's still Verizon that's running the show, then Verizon is still going to charge monopoly prices. And so the the market would still be concentrated. What difference does it make that there's uh, this hybrid model that offers Verizon plus something else? Well, because the hybrids can decide that if these prices that they're being charged from the national operator uh, are getting too high, then they have greater incentive to invest in their own infrastructure and become less reliant upon it. And the more they do that, then the more they become a full competitor to the traditional um, mobile network operators. And, and that would be things like just t- sticking a 5G antenna in some of those Wi-Fi hotspots. Yes. Or, you know, and increasing the footprints covered by the Wi-Fi hotspots or uh, investing in more spectrum. So just just one last question about what this means for consumers. We, we've been talking about a lot about 5G. That's not going to be deployed everywhere. And you also noted that these, these um, hybrid networks are not necessarily deployed everywhere. So there may be large parts of America that, that don't have a cable company that's doing this, that are not part of that consortium. So they may not have this option. So will those people benefit from this option? 
Yes, because inherent, inherently, even if the cable operators are only offering to their own service areas initially, if we look at the coverage of cable operators across the United States, that puts a lot of pressure in many geographic, and in fact, most geographic areas of the United States. And so even if each, in each single area, a consumer is only facing one new option, and it's not necessarily this exact same new option as someone else. Uh, there it's is the same kind of option. It's the same kind of option. And it's a realistic option. It's a it's not too costly and it's high quality. And it's it's nationally interoperable because of the consortium. So the it doesn't really matter that this option, if I live in North Carolina, is the same option as someone who's living in New York, but we each have this new option. And inherently, that's going to put pressure on competitors, uh, both locally and then as we're adding this up, this is creating a national pressure. Well, and, and key detail here, the national um, wireless carriers, as far as I know, their pricing is nationwide. Right. So if they want to respond to competitive pressure in a particular market... They, they, they really they can't lower their prices only in those markets. Right. Sometimes there can be promotions that are slightly local, but you're right that for the most part, these are national, national plans and it doesn't matter where you live in terms of how much you're paying. Great. So consumers everywhere benefit from all this. Well, uh, this is all great. Uh, I really appreciate your coming on. We've been talking about your paper, which is entitled The... Uh, competition in wireless telecommunications, the role of uh, MVNOs, that's um, mobile virtual network operators, and cables entry into wireless. And it's in that paper that you talk about the hybrid uh, network operators, the homnos, as I have eloquently referred to them. Uh, and you do also include a disclosure in here noting that your paper, uh, you did receive support from T-Mobile in writing your paper. Correct. But you're not making a particular recommendation about the T-Mobile Sprint deal. Not in that paper, no. I was really interested in looking at how the entry of, of the cable operators into this new mobile service was, was impacting the overall uh, competitive levels and choices for consumers. And suggesting that the FCC should be considering this and all of the things that they study. Absolutely. Great. Well, Dr. Connolly, thank you again for coming on the show. We look forward to having you back and uh, we'll put a link to the show notes, uh, to your paper in the show notes. Again, thanks for coming on the show. Uh we have Michelle Connolly, a professor of economics and a PhD from Duke University and also a Yale alumni joining us. Um, Michelle, can you please let our listeners know, how did you end up doing economics and applying it to telecommunications and then just in general? What did what was the path that led you to this chair in front of me? Uh, in some ways, a very direct path. In other ways, completely unexpected. Uh, I grew up, my father was an economist. So I grew up always thinking about economics, thinking about trade, thinking about exchange rates, thinking about development. And so I wanted to, to do economics and I got my degree and I was specializing in international trade, economic growth and development. And those were the things I was focused on. And then about halfway through my career at Duke, I received a very surprising invitation from the Federal Communications Commission that they were interested in me for their chief economist position. And this is in 2008, right? This was in 2006. Six. Okay. Because I did two different stints at the FCC. 
Okay. So the first one was in 2006. And at the time, I certainly had the theoretical background for that type of position, but I had no practical knowledge within the industry. So it was daunting to me. I didn't feel qualified, uh, but I Wait, did so it. A PhD from Yale, 10 years in Yale University. This is just textbook. And I, I think a lot of women have this just the imposter syndrome of not really knowing how great you are. This is just me fangirling. I'm sorry. All right. Just go but, ahead. I know. And, but the, I had a, a real reason. And it was just that I didn't have the government experience, the, the experience in that industry, mm-hmm. because all of my research had been at the more macro level and uh, on different topics. So I came in, but I, you know, I came in very humbly and people were great at the FCC and people in the industry were great. And I just learned and learned and learned. And then I went back to Duke and then the FCC asked me if I'd like to come again. I went again. And then now, now the second time I was like, oh no, I'm ready for this. I'm, I'm good to go. And then through that experience, I've gotten tons more invitations to interact with different groups of people and learn all these new things. So the amazing thing is that now I do feel like I'm an expert. I feel like I know almost everything related to this industry. Um, But it was by happenstance. It's kind of who offered me opportunities and was just saying yes. Would you say telecom industry in general and the telecom policy, and obviously you interacted with a lot of telecom lawyers, I'm guessing, would you say they're 50-50 when it comes to male to female ratio or? With the lawyers, probably, or it's, it's probably fairly similar. Uh, certainly not with economists and certainly not with engineers. So that's where you see the the breakdown of kind of parity. And and that fits with kind of those industries. There are just fewer women who go into engineering, fewer women who go into economics, but more women are doing law. So they're equally represented ask, there. Economics, it is considered more of a hard science, you know, because it involves a lot of mathematics, it involves a lot a different type of thinking and analysis. Was it hard um well obviously you grew up you said you grew up in a family of economists but was there any kind of tension that you saw when you were coming up in the ranks in this field? Well, it's, it's very interesting because I see things very differently now. Uh, there was no tension on my part because it just seemed like that's the way things are. I, I didn't even notice it. My second year in graduate school, I was taking my final exam. And I looked up and I saw the two professors. I was like, oh, yeah, both professors are men. And then I looked around the room and every single student except for me was a man. And then I thought, and I'm realizing this the day of the final exam. Okay, so you didn't notice it. I didn't even notice it the whole semester. It was just so standard that it didn't catch my attention. And at the time, I remember thinking, why do people always say you need role models? I didn't have female professors. I didn't have that, and I didn't think I needed it. But what I've realized as I've gotten older is um, my father was a professor. 
And so I had a role model in my family. I didn't need the external one because it was already familiar to me. And even I realized we were having a faculty meeting at Duke on the issue of, of how many female faculty members we have and how many undergraduates do economic, economics and how many of our graduate students are, are women as well. And I realized that of the women in our department, two of us have fathers who are also economists. And I don't think that's accidental. accidental. No, I mean, I think that's the thing is that if, if you grow up thinking it's normal, then it is. And you don't stop yourself or, you know, even better, you know, it exists Yeah, <laughs> and absolutely. you don't stop yourself. What would you recommend for um, students and women and men who want to break into the telecom slash tech industry in general? May that be economics or law or policy and somewhere in between? Do you think they are maybe tactics or ways or places to go and people to ask and identify those people, right? So I, I think it's a difficult question for me to answer because for me, I've come into it as a specialist. And so unless you do your specialization, like getting your engineering degree or becoming an economist, um, you have to do that first before then you specialize within telecom and you meet people and you get to, to do things. I don't know for people who are coming from law, but even in that situation, I assume, um, they'll, you got to have a niche. You have, right. You have to have a niche that makes you valuable to the industry, whether that niche is you're an amazing lawyer, amazing data analysis, uh, yeah. do amazing data analysis. It can be many different things. And, and when you're young, people don't know what your specialty is or what your strengths are. So a lot of that gets revealed as you interact with people. But I remember one thing that Oprah once said, and she said, if you are good, you will get noticed. And so I think that's that's always the key in any industry is to just do what what's, goes to your strength and do well, and then you'll get noticed and you'll get more opportunities. Oh, that's great. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank and you. You can follow Tech Freedom on Facebook and Twitter at Tech Freedom. We're going to link to Professor Connolly's works in our show notes. Thank you for listening. The Tech Policy Podcast is produced and distributed by Tech Freedom, a nonpartisan nonprofit think tank in Washington, D.C. To learn more about our work, make a tax-deductible donation, or find other episodes, find us online at techfreedom.org. <laughs>